So, Sharon, tell me a bit about your life when you were younger. Like, how did you get involved with meditation? Uh, I went to college. Uh, I went to this university in New York State when I was 16, and I took an Asian philosophy course when I was a sophomore, partly because there was a philosophy requirement. I had to take some philosophy course, and partly you know, it was really, as I look back, it was kind of happenstance. I looked at the schedule and I thought, oh, that course is on a convenient day for me. I'll take that one. And it totally changed my life. I felt like, uh, for one thing, in the section on, on the Buddha and the Buddha's teaching, um, there was a very frank and open acknowledgement about suffering, the suffering in life. And I, like many people, I had a very uh, disrupted, traumatic childhood, and like for many people, this was never spoken about openly. So I just felt this tremendous sense of relief, like, oh, this is a part of life. This isn't just me, it isn't just you, it's everybody. And and then I heard about the prospect of doing something about your mind so that you could relate to joy and pleasure differently, not be so distracted, and you could relate to pain and difficulty without adding isolation and and shame and all those things we usually add, and that you could even relate differently to neutral experience, the kind of ordinary, routine, repetitive things where we normally just feel numb or, or half asleep. And this was all contained in the possibility of learning how to meditate. So uh, the university I was going to had an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked... You could go anywhere for a year, anywhere in the world, theoretically, to come back for your final year and and finish school. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and learn meditation. And uh, education, this was 1970, it was very kind of free and open then. And and they said yes. So the beginning of my junior year, I went off with my college loans and my scholarships. I went to India to learn how to meditate. So I wasn't interested in Buddhism per se. I certainly wasn't interested in becoming a Buddhist or leaving anything else behind. But once I heard there were seemingly practical tools like meditation that you can actually do, you could actually put into use that could make you happier, I thought, I've got to learn how to do that. I was in India myself last year for about six months. It was an amazing place. And like, how did you find India? Oh, it was, it was amazing for me. I loved India. This, of course, was a long time ago. And uh, you've been back more recently than I. So <laughs> how did you find India? It was amazing, actually. It was mind-blowing, to say the least. Yeah, it's totally mind-blowing. Everything's so intense. And it's all happening, right, in the open. And um, I started out in uh, Dharamsala because I knew the Dalai Lama lived there. And... Um, I thought maybe I could learn meditation around him, and that didn't actually work so well. And I mean, it was wonderful, it was extraordinary, but for the kind of very pragmatic tools I was looking for, it wasn't that easy at that point to access that there. So I ended up in Bodhgaya, which is the town they say the Buddha was enlightened in under that tree, and uh, that's where I actually began practice. So most of my time was in northern India in different different places. I loved it. It was just... Uh, it it was so assaultive, it was so intense, but it, it was an amazing experience. When you're going to India, would you describe it say like as a sort of like inward calling or like you know like spiritual awakening to go there? Or... I think so because I look back at that moment and I think 
that was brilliant. Um, because I could easily have kept it more in academic interest and think, oh, that's good for other people probably, and I applaud them, I congratulate <laughs> them, but I can't do it, or what could it possibly mean for me? Or uh, even sometimes when I... I'm signing a book, you know, that I've written for people, and they'll say, oh, I, I'm buying your book for my cousin because I could never meditate, but it'll really help them. And I think that could have been me easily. I could have stayed in school and uh, had a kind of distant admiration, but instead something lit up inside of me. And I think of that moment so many times because it was just intuition. I had no real idea and the kinds of tools and, you know, books and uh, tapes and CDs that are available to us now were not available then. I had no idea where I was going or what, how I would find what I was looking for. You just mentioned intuition. Like, just explain that a little bit, Sharon. Well, really, you know, again, I think of that moment, and I think I moved off of the margins right into the center of a possibility and something told me I could do it and that I needed to do it and now I was 18 years old and so now I meet 18 year olds and I think wow <laughs> I went all the way around the world <laughs> when I was 18 you know I was really young um and it it was so clear a voice that even when I first got to India and I couldn't find what I was looking for precisely. Uh, it took about three months. Um, and there was so much not knowing. One thing led to the next, led to the next, led to the next. And I had to just let it play out. And often I thought, I'll never find it. It won't work. And, um, and then I did. <laughs> so it took a while of tr trusting that Okay, I'm, I'm very discouraged. I don't see how it's going to happen. Maybe it won't happen, but I have to. I have to keep on. I have to keep trying. Lovely story. <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. And like, I suppose, do you think you know like, in your years of practicing meditation, has it changed you as a person? Well, yes. You know, I'm far from 18, <laughs> and so <laughs> it's been my entire life. Uh, my, certainly, my entire adult life, and. So sometimes I have a little difficulty actually answering that question because I can't imagine what my life would have been like without it. But I think it, you know, meditation remains a source of tremendous strength for me and clarity when I feel uncertain or um, uh, there are too many choices or, or there's some kind of inner turmoil, I know that what I need to do is look within on a deeper level and just be with that experience, including the discomfort and the confusion, until I can see more clearly. And, you know, being able to sit there with uncomfortable feelings like that, instead of saying, I've got to rush and work it out, you know, because <laughs> I can't bear being uncomfortable. Uh, is, has been a source of great strength, and it remains that. It's not like an old thing in my life, you know, like, oh, yeah, that was great in the 70s when I used to do it. Um, it's still great. Not every day it doesn't feel great, but uh, the sum total of all that effort is, is really essential to my life. Going back to India, Sharon, do you see many differences between like, India and the West? Is there similarities there? Well, there are differences in the culture for sure, but um, because I partly maybe because I helped establish a retreat center in 
the U.S. and Massachusetts, um, the Insight Meditation Society. I think it's a splendid place to do intensive <laughs> retreat. And if I were looking for a retreat center, I would go there uh, rather than somewhere in the east. It's quieter. <laughs> it's cleaner. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm when I went to Asia, you had to go to Asia. I looked around everywhere I could find in the U.S., and there was nothing. I mean, there were few. Um, there were a few places, uh, but as far as I could tell, um, they didn't quite suit what I was looking for. You know, that very practical, pragmatic, non-sectarian approach. And I had to go to India. I had to go somewhere, you know, <laughs> in order to find it. And, of course, it's different now. I mean, I, I'm immensely grateful I went there, and I would encourage people to go for something other than the meditation instruction and the supportive environment, probably. It's what you likely experienced in being there. You know, it's the tremendous generosity of the people, even though they're very poor, and the kind of um, faith people have, even in difficult circumstances. Somebody once said, everyone in India is a philosopher, you know, like... Any any single train ride, <laughs> and you're getting some conversation that's uh, very different than you might get, very say, true. you know, going from Washington D.C. to New York by train, where no one speaks. Um, and so it's uh, it, it's a tremendous experience, I think, being in those kinds of cultures. But for the sheer idea of instruction in meditation and uh, especially probably the supportive environment where you'll be healthier and um, just taken care of in, in an appropriate way. One of the things that really surprised me about India was how loud it is. You know, the loudspeakers yeah. blaring. And and in the uh, in the 70s, I went to India. In the 80s, I went to Burma, which was equally loud. And we'd be sitting in some pristine retreat center and then the loudspeakers from the village would come and they'd be playing old rock and roll songs from like the 60s and but in Burmese and so I couldn't identify the words and I think I know that tune what is that song and uh there's a tremendous amount of distraction in, in a lot of ways and you learn to live with it which is its own kind of strength but um still I would go to Barry Massachusetts if if I wanted to do an intensive retreat well, back when I, uh, back in the day when I lived in India, of course it was much simpler still because there were no cell phones, there were no uh, computers, so no email, no faxing. There were very few books in English, and if you heard something inspiring or you were meditating and had a kind of profound experience, you had to write it down, and you know, with pen and a piece of paper and. Uh, virtually all my friends, including myself, we had notebooks where all those passages we would write down or a teacher said something, we'd write it down or we had some kind of new understanding in our meditation, we'd write it down. So I still have my notebook, as do I think we all. And uh, you had to work harder to get the information and to, to retain it. And I think that was good too. Now I see in my own mind, I think, you know, I Google something 
And I don't even kind of bother to try to remember it. I think I'll Google it again. <laughs> you know, so what? So I have a different relationship to the information. Sharonla, you're a strong advocate of loving-kindness meditation. What, what is loving-kindness meditation? Well, many of the techniques that are getting so popular uh, these days are about mindfulness, which is really a quality of awareness that helps us get closer to our experience without so much um, kind of prior assumption or projection into the future or kind of quick, almost disconnected interpretation so we can see our experience more clearly. And uh, that's really the purpose of mindfulness meditation, to, to have more insight and understanding. And there's a whole other class of meditation techniques that fall into sort of that sense of loving kindness, which, I, which are a little, they work a little differently. So uh, they work because they invite us to pay attention differently. So, for example, if you are in the habit at the end of the day of looking back at your day, almost as though to evaluate yourself, like, how did I do today? And if you're in the habit of pretty well only remembering the mistakes you made and the things you did wrong and what you could have done better, let's just say, the practice of loving kindness is like, you admit that. It's not like you're trying to pretend, oh, I had a perfect day and I'm perfect. But that's not all that happened. You know, so we almost purposefully place our attention on the good within us or the good we experienced because that's not where our minds, our conditioned minds will go. They will tend to dwell on what's wrong with us. And so it takes a kind of intentionality to include the other side. And that's how loving kindness practice works. So another example would be um, all the people that we encounter who maybe have some kind of service role in our lives or they work in the uh, grocery store we're used to going to and we hardly notice them they they might as well be a piece of furniture to us and instead of looking through them one day we look at them and we acknowledge oh this is a human being with a life and a story and uh it takes intentionality because we're so in the habit of just discounting them or ignoring them. So so the kind of intentional um, stretching or flexibility in how we pay attention is the root of loving-kindness practice, to look at the good and not only the negative, to look uh, in an inclusive way towards others rather than excluding some. That's that's the basis of that practice. Yeah, it sounds very powerful. Like, Do you think, Sharon, that is this like a very healing meditation for people? I think it's tremendously healing. Um, the classical tradition has us begin with offering loving kindness to ourselves because the theory goes that that's supposed to be easiest, that we can more easily offer loving kindness to ourselves than anybody, and then we build on that to offering loving kindness to these different categories of beings, those who've been good to us, they've helped us, and friends and neutral people like that person who works in the grocery store and even difficult people and then all beings everywhere and so many people these days in our times say I'm the hardest person I'm not the easiest person so I always say you know let's look at the underlying principle and if the underlying principle is the evolution 
from what's easier to what's more difficult, change the sequence. Just change the order, you know. Start with your best friend or something and, you know, come later. <laughs> and, and so we're always, um, it's a very creative practice in that way. What has been like, your own journey with loving kindness meditation, Sharon? I had always heard about it from my first retreat was in, in January 1971. And we did some loving kindness practice at the end of 10 days of doing mindfulness practice. And it was almost like a ceremonial way to end the retreat and say goodbye to fill your, in that particular way of practicing, fill your body with the sense of loving kindness and then extend to others. And, and I was just so intrigued by it. And taken with it but I never really had a chance to do it intensively in a structured way with guidance until 1985 when I went to Burma I went to Burma for three months and just did loving kindness practice and came back to the states began teaching it and um, 20 years ago my first book which was called loving kindness came out so that was really the marker I think of the kind of wider introduction in the West of, of that particular form of practice because mindfulness practice was already, and not like now, you know, but, but it, was, it was getting more established more quickly. And then uh, 95, when my book came out, was really the beginning of loving kindness. And now it's interesting because so much of the um, earlier research on meditation practice has been around mindfulness practice and there's a new wave coming of a lot of studies on compassion practice and loving kindness practice. I'm intrigued by you, uh, you being in Burma. Anything special happened to you while you were there? Oh, when I mean, doing that retreat was amazing. Um, I think, and actually, I'm writing a book on love right now, so it's like revisiting 20 years later. Um, and I had just written uh, a section about how. I think when I started out that retreat in Burma on loving-kindness, uh, to at least some degree, I held the conventional view of love, which was that it was something that someone else delivered to me, like a package, you know, <laughs> coming from a delivery service. And they could take it away, and then I wouldn't have any love in myself. And then I realized in the course of doing that practice that that's a capacity we all have inside of us and that some people or situations or events awaken it in us, but they actually can't take it away because they don't own it. You know, we own it in a way. And that was a complete shift for me. And that was just one of many, you know, that happened in the course of, of doing that practice. So, you know, there's times when you're offering loving kindness to those who've helped you. And sometimes we don't, remember how many people have helped us i mean i was in, i was in burma because i'd been in india i was in india because i had a government scholarship to go to college which was the only way i was able financially to go to college and so uh it was called a regent scholarship and sometimes now when i'm practicing i offer loving kindness to the board of regents of the state of new york which gave me a scholarship so i could go to college and so you realize, wow, you know, I don't think every day about all the people who've helped me. And, and look at that. Uh, there have been. Or those neutral people, all those shopkeepers and people that we might kind of ignore or 
not count. I could, they kind of came alive for me, even though I didn't know anybody's history or struggles or names or anything. It was like, oh, yeah, and there's that person, that person. So it was, it was a tremendous experience. It sounds to me that loving-kindness meditation helps you to come more in contact with your emotions. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Well, I think all meditation actually does that mm. to some extent because you're really looking within. And so you're seeing so much. But loving-kindness practice um, is a delicate practice because it's actually, those are real people you're thinking of. You know, it's not an imaginary person. And relationships are complicated. And so we, we try to focus on the form of the practice, so we're actually meditating and not just thinking. Um, but at the same time, quite a lot will come up. So, for example, in the classical sequence, you start with yourself, and then you go to a benefactor, someone who's helped you, then a friend, then a neutral person, then a difficult person, and then all beings. So sometimes people say, um, you know, they'll be offering loving kindness to a, a benefactor, someone they really love and admire. And then they think, you know, there was that one time I phoned and they weren't really there for me. Maybe they're not my benefactor. Maybe they're my difficult person. And, and you just see, uh, really, life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. We're complicated. We feel one way about someone one day, a different way about that same person another day. So there's a lot of psych- sort of psychological insight that comes from doing that practice. Do you think... With the practice, Sharon, that it, I suppose like it bridges the gap between, say, you know, ourselves and getting to know ourselves better. Oh yeah, I think uh, one of the purposes of meditation, in general, is to really know ourselves better, and um, we see all kinds of things. Which is why good meditation doesn't always mean peaceful, serene, blissful, lovely. You know, it can be very restless or agitated or. Uh, distressing in some way but because you've learned the skills or are learning the skills to be with all those experiences without judgment and without kind of taking them to heart like I'll always be this way um and with more kindness towards yourself then you have you have the way of getting through any experience and it could be good meditation a big focus in loving kindness meditation is compassion for ourselves and for others but like how do you think we could cultivate more of this in our lives well i think it's very interesting in 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 the sense of formal meditation if even if you're doing something which is very common across traditions something like just feeling the breath feeling the sensations of the in and out breath that was actually the first instruction in meditation i ever got when i went to that course in india feel your breath sit down and feel your breath and First of all, I was very disappointed. I thought, wow, I came all the way to India, <laughs> you know? Like, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that'll clear away all my suffering? What do you mean, feel my breath? I could have stayed home. And then I thought, ah, how hard can this be? And to my astonishment, it was not easy. Instead of 800 breaths or 900 breaths before my mind wandered, there was like one or two, and I'd be gone. And I was told over and over again, but hardly believe that the most important moment in the meditation is the moment after you've been distracted or after you've fallen asleep because that's the moment we can practice compassion for ourselves. 
instead of blaming ourselves and feeling like we failed and going on and on in that direction, we can practice letting go and being kind to ourselves, beginning again. And and that is really one of the um, strengths we are cultivating in meditation. And it only works if we're kind to ourselves because if you go on a tirade, you know, for 45 minutes, I'm the worst meditator that ever lived, you're not going to accomplish anything. So the only way to really be successful is to learn how to let go and have kindness towards yourself. And that would just be one example, because as soon as you begin establishing that, then you you see that, oh, compassion is not a weakness. It's not something that stands in our way. It's actually a strength. And then you can begin applying compassion to others as well. You mentioned mindfulness meditation, but what type of mindfulness meditation do you practice? Uh, well, the kinds I, I teach and practice are starting with awareness of the breath, which is a centering object. It's a way to get more concentrated and stabilize your attention. And it doesn't have to be the breath that you place your attention on and keep returning to, but it could be anything. It could be a sound or a mantra or an image or um, all kinds of things. But the breath is commonly chosen because as... One of my early teachers said, it's very portable, you know, so it's going to be with you when you go to school, when you go to work. Um, if you're getting very upset about something or everyone around you is getting upset about something, you can just settle your attention on your breath and, and ground or center. And I like it because it's so private, like nobody has to know you're doing it. You know, you're not pulling out all this esoteric equipment and looking strange. It's just... You have a resource there um, that's there for you to help you get more in the moment and come back to yourself and things like that. So it's very useful. So we start with awareness of the breath, and then we apply mindfulness to the body and emotions and other things that come up. So we're practicing a skill of being with what's happening without either diving into it and getting overwhelmed or pushing it away and trying to make it go away. So it's a much more balanced awareness of whatever's going on. Yeah, I know you just touched it there, Sharon, but like, I suppose, is there a goal or is there a purpose behind meditation? Well, I think of meditation largely as a skills training and that um, we're practicing skills like letting go. It's what one of my teachers once called exercising the letting go muscle, <laughs> practicing beginning again, again and again and again which is a, a really great thing to bring into life, you know. Um, uh, we're practicing and strengthening uh, concentration or stability of attention so we don't feel so all over the place and distracted and forgetful. And We're practicing mindfulness so we feel like we're in touch, we know what's happening, instead of feeling like we exist in the middle of a storm, you know, and it's all too much we, we have a sense of balance and um awareness and we're actually we actually talk about meditation as practicing compassion uh and that i find is a little bit different certainly in the states because um people don't like to think of compassion as something we can train in it sounds so cold you know like i did a weekend course and now i'm a compassionate person um 
But because we believe that compassion rests on how we pay attention, like you'll never have compassion for that person in the grocery store until you actually pay attention to them, then that door to compassion can open. But if they're just like an object in your mind and you're in a hurry and you're not even sensing that, oh, this is a human being, then you're not going to feel compassion. So uh, compassion will follow attention, which absolutely we consider trainable. That's what meditation's all about, is training your attention. So I think that's also a great benefit of meditation practice. You get more concentrated, you get more mindful, and you have more compassion. I know you touched on, on compassion there, like, but would you think that you probably need to start with ourselves first and then you can move it out? That's the traditional way of practice. Yeah. It's only when, and some people do have a, a really great difficulty with themselves, and I think, don't struggle. You know, there, there are other ways you can do this. You can, you can be flexible about the order, about the sequence. You, know, you mentioned there about being guided through meditation. I suppose, how does that compare to like buying, buying a book, say, and reading it? Do we really need to be guided meditation, or could we just like, buy a book off Amazon and read about it and, and learn it that way? It depends on which book. <laughs> exactly. If one of your books, probably, yeah, it'll probably it'll do the trick, I suppose. <laughs> no, I, I'm, yeah. I'm serious, actually, because I think learning the techniques, the actual method of meditation is not difficult. What's also important is having some clarity of expectation because people say that to me all the time. If they say to me, what do you do? And I say, I teach meditation. All the time they'll say, oh, I tried that once. I failed at it. And then they'll usually describe what they thought should happen. I failed at it because I couldn't stop all thinking. I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't have only beautiful thoughts. I couldn't keep anxiety from coming up. I couldn't keep sleepiness away. And I always say, that's not the goal of meditation. We're not trying to make our minds blank or have only beautiful thoughts or not have disturbing emotions. We're trying to develop a different relationship to everything that comes up so we can stay grounded and centered and aware and kinder no matter what's happening. And so it's not a bad sign if you have a lot of thoughts. It doesn't mean you failed. If they're all nasty ones, it's okay. But that is so hard to believe, and most people, most people don't enter meditation with that understanding. And so having somebody, whether you get that information from a book that you find convincing or an audio something or you have a class, in some way it is or a community, even just people who share with one another, some way to have that kind of understanding develop. So then you can have fun when you're meditating instead of thinking, I'm so bad at this, I'm terrible. I know there's a strong link between like happiness and meditation. Why is this? I think because meditation gives us a way of dealing with whatever happens. Like life every day has its ups and downs, it just does. That's the nature of things. And sometimes we don't even enjoy the ups because we're too distracted and we're, we're so busy that we don't realize, wow, this great thing is going on. Look at that. Um, or we expected it to be something else. Like I was um, in a, a place in New Mexico uh, not too long ago and there was a rainstorm and then 
I pulled into my hotel, my rental car, and there was a beautiful rainbow in the sky. And I saw that the hotel courtyard was filled with people with cameras. They were all taking photos of the rainbow. And, and uh, so I you know, like jumped out of my car, I gave the keys to the valet, I grabbed my iPhone, and I found the camera app and pointed it up at the sky, and the rainbow was gone. And there were just, the only thing left were these kind of bright, shiny pink clouds. And I was so disappointed. And then these two women walked out of the hotel, and one woman said to the other, Look at those beautiful pink clouds. And I thought, Don't you realize it could have been a rainbow? You know, like what you're missing. So we don't even enjoy necessarily the wonderful things that are happening. And if we're more aware and connected, we can. And we certainly have all kinds of um, difficult conditioning around painful things. You know, we feel so ashamed or we think we should have been in control of everything and we blame ourselves or we isolate or we isolate others and we can learn to have a more compassionate relationship to times of difficulty. And all those places in between that are just kind of boring and routine, we can actually develop a greater sensitivity with and be more aware and that's a different life than the one we've got same old stuff happening but we're with it so differently i know what comes to mind for me there at the moment is enlightenment like is it is that like enlightenment that's a kind of enlightenment yeah (laughs) i take that one (laughs) i know i heard recently that you devote your life for the path of meditation do we really need to do this to achieve the full benefits of meditation Well, I think to achieve the benefits of meditation, you need to meditate, um, which is not easy for us, you know. Uh, It's much easier to think about than to do. And so you have to see what supports your ability to do it. Um, And to some degree, that's personal. Uh, People always ask me, should I sit in the morning, should I sit in the evening, should I sit or walk? Should I sit with others or should I sit alone? Should I sit at the same time every day? Should I sit in the same place every day? And I always say in response, it depends on what works for you. Um, You know, if you have the idea it's better to sit in the morning and you're not going to sit in the morning, sit when you sit. You know, that's, that's what's important. So there are all kinds of structures we put in place to help us actually do it. Because it's not easy. It just isn't. And so... um, That might and often means some kind of community where people have some of the same values. It might mean a teacher. Um, It uh, often means taking a look at the rest of your life and how you're living and are the things you really want to change. It's very difficult, for example, to tell lies at work or school all week long and then sit down on Saturday seeking the truth, you know, you don't feel whole inside. You feel really torn apart. And so we see things like that. And we think, oh, maybe I need to clean up my act a little bit, you know. That would support my meditation too. And so the changes can be really organic based on our own experience. And, you know, you mentioned there about meditation not being easy for most people. Like, why do you think that is... Well, it's not easy to do it, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily, you know, a big burden when you're actually sitting there, but it's very hard to get yourself to sit there. I, I don't know, I think this is a Western habit of holding things more in the abstract, 
rather than putting them into practice. Um, many times we'd rather read a book about a thing than do the thing. Uh, and so that's, that's a constant shift for us. Like, uh, you know, I first heard about these practices when I was in school, and that's what I said earlier. I could have stayed in school writing papers about them forever, but I didn't. I chose to learn them so I could actually do them, and that's what's difficult for us every day, um, but possible, and it's where it really happens. There's a lot of research that suggests meditation is good for your mind, your body, and your health. Would you agree with this, Sharon? Yes, um, uh, there certainly is more and more research, and uh, the uh, I know many scientists at this point who are both meditating and and studying meditation, and some who are studying meditation who don't meditate as well. And uh, you know, the, the really good scientists that I know um, don't like to make wild claims. You know, like if you meditate ten minutes a day, this will definitely happen, and you'll. You know, you'll not get sick and you won't get Alzheimer's and this and that. Um, so the way they phrase things is much uh, more tentative than that or more gentle. You know, like studies seem to show that there's a, a possibility or, or you know, even likelihood, but they're not making a promise, you know. Uh, but there are a lot of studies and um, growing, growing numbers of studies and... It's it's a whole way of relanguaging things in, into a a conversation that we feel comfortable with in the West. You know, I'd rather. I mean, as a Western person, um, perhaps I'd rather think about my brain changing than some mysterious force. You know, <laughs> of meditation that's changing my life. I like to think, oh, that part of my brain's doing that, and that part of my brain's doing that. You might have heard about passive meditation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they have used it in like in prisons mm. with quite profound results, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, vipassana means insight, yeah. and the um, that particular form of of insight meditation or vipassana uh, is amongst the um, by now you know few quite a few forms that have worked in prison with tremendous results and. Uh, also in hospitals and schools, um, there are all kinds of places where meditation, in the appropriate presentation, uh, is happening. You know, so I wouldn't talk to a five-year-old the way I'm talking to you, but uh, you know, there are ways of expressing all of these things in very concrete and, and appropriate terms. Why do you think the Western world? It's taken so long to adapt to, you know, like meditation, these type of things. Well, I think there have also been contemplative traditions in every Western religion and, you know, many philosophies and orientations. So it has really been a thread. Uh, I think there are other things in the West, like materialism and um, the Industrial Revolution and things that... uh, have given us a certain direction and it's good uh, because you wouldn't want to not have that (laughs) like I really like my computer (laughs) I first wrote loving kindness as I said well it came out 20 years ago and 
I did the whole first few drafts without a computer because almost nobody I knew had a personal computer in those days. A few friends did, and I noticed whenever they were at a party, it was all they talked about was their computer, and I would think, what's wrong with them? You know, like, And I was very intimidated. I thought, I can't possibly learn how to use a computer. And so in those days, cutting and pasting meant getting a pair of scissors and cutting out the paragraph you were uncertain about and moving it around until you found where you wanted to put it and you'd get some scotch tape and you'd, um, I don't know what you call it here, we call it scotch tape, and we'd tape it onto the, the paper. And it was so hard, <laughs> you know? And then, uh, you know, I was working in that way and, and uh, a 94-year-old Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka came to visit my center, the Insight Meditation Society, and he mentioned he was learning how to use a computer. And I thought, wow, he's 94 years old. If he can learn, maybe I can learn. So I learned how, and I only learned like seven things, like cutting, pasting, copying. And I finished the book. And it was like a miracle to have that. And so I don't think it's wrong that our attention by and large has gone to that kind of uh, change in lifestyle. But it's been so one-pointed, and we've lost so much of other opportunities. And so I think it's kind of great that in this time uh, there's, there's all this resurgence of interest. And like you think there's like a link between meditation, you know, and you say like, like spirituality. Like, is there what's the connection there? Well, that is not always talked about anymore because. Uh, in the states, for example, in, in a public school or in a in a school, um, you know, not a private school, but uh, something that has open enrollment, you can't really discuss religion at all, and and so um, all these methods and techniques need to be taken away from any context that might disturb anyone. Uh, because you can't do prayer in school. So people say, well, why can you do meditation if that's another spiritual or religious activity? And we say, well, it doesn't have to be seen that way. It's like a mental exercise. Um, the way uh, I have a friend who's, who's a news anchor in the States who's very funny, and he said he thinks meditation is going to be the next public health revolution. Um, he said it used to be if you told somebody you were running, they would say, well, who's chasing you? <laughs> you know, and then people didn't do that. And then all of a sudden people were doing that. And so he thinks meditation is going to be the same way. That it's just something we bring into our routine because it helps keep us healthy and uh, aware and all of that. So um, that's mostly how meditation is presented. Certainly there's a spiritual component in that when we open and we pay attention, we see all kinds of things, including things like uh, how connected we all are, that we actually live in an interconnected universe where um, we're not so alone, that we're part of a bigger picture of life. and uh, It's just that level isn't always spoken about. Are there any times where meditation wouldn't be recommended to somebody? Um, I think it depends on the form. Like, there's certainly times 
somebody wouldn't necessarily want to go on intensive silent retreat, you know, uh, if you're feeling really down and you you don't want to be in a place where no one's talking to you um, or you've had a recent trauma, very recent, you know, and you're still processing. There might not be enough support on, on an intensive retreat. But that doesn't mean you couldn't meditate altogether. And you would probably want a teacher um, so that you, you remembered things like balance. Very often people try too hard. You know, they think, well, I've got this big problem and if I just meditate 22 hours a day, you know, it'll go away. And That's unlikely. <laughs> you know, usually you'll get exhausted. Um, and so someone to remind you of balance. And even... Honestly, you know, sometimes sitting is not nearly going to be as useful as movement meditation or um, vocal meditation, you know, where you're chanting or something like that. And so working with somebody who help you find the form, maybe sitting some monastery in Burma I've heard about where you only sit for five minutes and then you walk for five minutes and then you sit for five minutes and... I think, wow, I never ended up in a place like that. That might have been interesting compared to, you know, sit there for an hour. Um, that might be the right form for somebody in, or drinking a cup of tea, something very tangible uh, where you feel the warmth of the teacup and you smell the tea and you taste the tea. That might be a good form of meditation for someone at some point. So, so I'm just curious, like, what have been your own, say, you know, biggest struggles with meditation? Um, I think there's been a repetitive thread, certainly of self-judgment, because I can look back at different years where either different teachers or the same teacher in a different way has kind of told me the same thing. I think, oh, look at that. That really lasted for years. So uh, I was 18 when I started, and I was very psychologically unsophisticated. I... Uh, knew I was very unhappy, but I'd never really looked within and saw the dimensions of what I was feeling. And so there it all was. And I was appalled. I thought, oh my God, I'm like the angriest person that ever lived, you know, or whatever. And uh, I can remember uh, one of my teachers, this man named Menindra, saying to me, why are you so upset about this thought that has come up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say at noon, I would like to be filled with self-hatred, please? No. But when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. And we can change the conditions to some extent, but not completely. You know, and that doesn't mean we need to fall victim to everything that comes up in our minds. That's a big part of what we're learning you know, is how to let go and see through things. But the degree of blame we usually have toward ourselves because we couldn't control what no one can control is astonishing. And so I see that thread as I look back, and I think, oh, Meninja said this in 1976, and he said it in a different way in 1978, and he said it in a different way in 1980. And... uh so I can see it's been like a running theme. And, and you know, like a lot of health professionals, they use meditation and mindfulness as a way to complement their, their practice these days. But like, do you think this is a good thing? Yeah, I think it's a great thing. 
uh, because it's a tool that people, um, I mean, it, it can be very reassuring and enriching to keep sitting in a community, but you don't absolutely have to. Once you have the confidence and the clarity about the tools, you can do it on your own. So it's very strengthening. It's very self-empowering. It's not like you have to stay in a um, particular relationship with somebody, with a guide, forever. Um, And I think that's good. It's good certainly as a complement to a lot of other things we may do for physical and mental health. You know, you talk about happiness in your book, Real Happiness. Like, What does happiness mean? Well, that was a title that was uh, given to me by the publisher of the book. And uh, as I was touring around with the book, um, I could see the word happiness was upsetting a lot of people uh, because we can think of happiness as something kind of superficial and uh, endlessly seeking pleasure and things like that, being conflict avoidant. And we're like that anyway. You don't need to buy a book, you know, to figure that out. Um, But happiness in a deeper sense, I think, means a kind of inner resource that comes from presence and balance and compassion and so on. And those are strengths. Those are things we actually cultivate so that... uh, we can have more space and a bigger feeling of composure when things are difficult and we can enjoy pleasurable things more because we're actually there uh, to experience them. And we can even wake up and feel connected when our experience is kind of neutral. So I would say happiness is, is the ability to be present and in a more balanced way with whatever's going on. And then there is, there's a source of joy that isn't going to be just destroyed because things didn't work. And when I flew here yesterday, my plane stayed on the ground for an extra hour and a half and going to Heathrow. And then I thought, oh my God, you know, I have a connection and I had that talk last night, and there's so many people registered. I didn't even know how many people. I just knew it was sold out. And and uh, I thought, you know, what's going to happen? if? It... And then I just thought, I'll figure it out. You know, I don't have to freak out for like six or eight hours on a transatlantic voyage. It's like, I don't know yet <laughs> like, that I'm going to miss the connection. And uh, and I know in years gone by, I would have freaked out, and I would have spent that entire flight, you know, in turmoil. And, and I actually made it by like 30 seconds or something to my plane. So it did work out. Brilliant. And like, what do you think stops us from achieving that happiness? I think it's just habits. You know, we have all kinds of habits of how we don't pay attention, or we hold on, or we push away, or and and meditation practice in practical terms is reforming those habits they say one of the root causes of unhappiness is comparisons why is this and what do you think we could do say to like reduce or minimize them well in uh eastern psychology or the buddhist psychology comparison is considered an unskillful action which means it causes us pain and suffering no matter what conclusion we draw from the comparison, we could look at somebody and think I'm better than they are, or I'm worse than they are, or I'm equal to them. 
And it's just the act of comparing that is so restless and agitating for us. And it's endless because someone new could walk in the door at any moment. You have to compare yourself to them and then another one, another one. So uh, it is a kind of burden. It's a burdensome habit to have. And so like with all these habits, we, we learn how to see them quickly. You know, not 15 hours into it, but very quickly, almost with a laugh, we can let go of it. And we think, that leads nowhere, you know, like, let's let go of this. And you just place your attention somewhere else. And uh, that's the practice. You know, we bring it to life with these more difficult and uh, in a way more subtle mental patterns, but we can do it there too. And, and then we are a lot happier because we think, okay, I have my life to lead. It's actually not going to make it any easier because I've now figured out my status relative to everyone else on this plane, you know, or on this planet. Uh, I just have to live my life. And I suppose, like, what comes to mind for me as well, Sharon, is that when we're in that place of judgment or comparing, we're not giving ourselves that love or that kindness. It's really true. Um, even if we decide that we're better than somebody at something, still a new person could walk in the door. That other person might improve, you know, and then we're desolated. Oh, no, now you're better to, than me today. And you realize it's out of kindness to yourself that you let go of these things because it just wears you down. And I suppose, like, just in regard to, say, you know, just Facebook and Twitter and social media, and I'm sure you're probably on Facebook and Twitter yourself, Sharon, but do you think this is having an impact on our happiness? Uh, mostly I'm on Twitter, actually, <laughs> although I do have a Facebook uh, page. I'm on Twitter all the time. I noticed last night, because of course being jet-lagged, I woke up in the middle of the night and all these people had tweeted about the talk. And I thought, look at that. <laughs> yeah, people say that um, because it, it takes some discipline not to be on all the time. It's so available that absent that discipline, we fall into what um, one friend of mine who's a writer, Linda Stone, she called continuous partial attention which she feels we experience because we're afraid of missing anything. So we're checking email, and then we think, what about Twitter? And we go to Twitter, and what about Facebook? And we're always jumping, and so we feel so unsettled, and our attention so fragmented. So it does take discipline to say, I'm not going to text while I walk down the street, or I'm not going to eat and also be online. And I have a friend who, um, as a joke, whenever we're together, we'll send out a tweet of having dinner with at, you know, whatever. His name is, so one day we were both in this restaurant and we're both like uh, on our phones tweeting about the other and someone in the restaurant knew him and came up to him and said, are you ever going to talk to each other or are you just going to stay on your phone. He said, no, no, we just do this in the beginning. It's like a joke. But people do that. Just constantly. I'm curious, Sharon, like, what has been your happiest moment in your life? In my life? Yes. Wow, that's yeah. really tough. <laughs> that is really tough. I have a lot of them, I'm happy to say. I was very happy meeting my teachers, uh, which I've had many of. 
um, feeling like a student, you know, feeling just the joy of learning. Um, I was very happy living in India, <laughs> uh, especially a place like Bodh Gaya, as it was then. I don't know how it is now because I haven't been there in a long time, but I was extremely happy when Loving Kindness came out because I had always wanted to be a writer and I never really thought I could do it. Um, my book, Real Happiness, got on the New York Times bestseller list. That was a happy moment. And I'm happy with very simple things like playing with a friend's dog or or, or just having a moment. And uh, I wasn't that happy at Heathrow, but, you know, even there, you know, seeing I wasn't freaked out was kind of a happy, a happy moment or not as freaked out. Um, even walking into that church last night and seeing 250 plus people, I just thought that was awesome. You know, that, uh, first of all, I made it, which was really good. And uh, seeing this kind of uh, shift in consciousness, as terrible as things are for so many people, um, still there's this kind of shift in consciousness, which feels like a force to me, a force for good. And that makes me very happy. It's great. And I know you just touched on like teachers and things like that, Sharon. Like, I suppose... Who has been your say, your greatest teacher or inspiration in your life? Uh, there too, I've had many, and I feel that I'm very, very lucky. I, the first person who comes to mind was this woman named Deepama, or Deepa's mother. Deepama's like a nickname. Um, who uh, had been a person who'd had tremendous suffering in her life, and she took to meditation practice, um, living in Burma. And she emerged from this period of her first period of meditation with just this enormous compassion for people. And so she was uh, really a tremendous model for me. And she was the person who in 1974 actually told me to teach. I was leaving India for what I was sure was a very brief visit home before I went back to India for the rest of my life, which was very much my intention. And I went to Calcutta to say goodbye to her, and she told me that when I got back to the States, I'd be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and she said, yes, you will. We went through it. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of stories about that. But, of course, she was right. And so she set me on the course of the rest of my life. 